politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to guard our liberties from a tyrannical government. This is Daniel Horowitz, your host, back in the house for March 16th. March 16th, Tuesday, 2021, and I cannot believe it that we are here at the anniversary Who of us, who among us would have thought that March 16, 2020, when the Trump administration, the greatest mistake of his presidency, announced 15 days to flatten the curve, meaning that we are now changing the course of history and we are proposing that the way to stop a virus is to take away people's liberties and destroy civilization that that would become a new religion, a new constitution, a new governing body that would be with us a year later with no end in sight, really, in most parts of the country. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're mainly going to change gears for today and actually talk about the other big crises. There are several of them, each one of them big enough to destroy a civilization, but the crime problem, the war on cops, the war on law and order the two-tier justice system. We're going to have a very special guest on today um, who is heading one of the only political action committees out there to fight back against the Soros prosecutors to fight for law and order when both parties are sitting there in their legislative bodies just focusing on letting criminals out when the judges are letting criminals out. So we have that going on as well. Um, But we'll we'll comment a little bit about this one-year anniversary of 15 years to flatten the country. But I first want to introduce today's sponsor just by noting that worse than the lies that were told about COVID and what it is and what it isn't, who it does and doesn't affect, how you can and cannot affect it, how you can and cannot treat it is the obfuscation of what they do not tell you. And that is true about every public policy issue. It's shocking how I come across people and they're like, wow, Daniel, I I didn't know you mean masks don't work. You know, people that I've been friends with but haven't spoken to for a while, like, wow, I I didn't know kids aren't a threat. I I didn't realize that. Oh, you know, and, and, and they're serious about that. This is how they feast on ignorance. It's more what they don't tell you. And I think, you know, it's a great segue into today's sponsor, MySonHunterMovie.com. Very special sponsor of today's show. So obviously the media, the politicians, and big tech work together to cover up the corruption of the Biden family and Hunter Biden. But now you have a chance to help make this story heard around the world. The filmmakers behind the Gosnell movie about abortion, if you remember that, have announced a brand new project, a feature film called My Son Hunter, that will expose the the Hunter Biden scandal. You can learn more at MySonHunterMovie.com. It's a tell-all, Hunter's wild escapades, obviously his laptop, the shady foreign business deals with China. But these independent filmmakers need your help. Hollywood doesn't want to fund this movie, obviously, 
Um, it's too controversial, as you can imagine, and uh, really exposes some uh, pow- powerful people. That's why they're bringing this film directly to the people funded by you. This is the way we're going to have to do things. If we want to create a parallel universe, your gift of $10, $50, or $100 or more will help expose the most corrupt family in politics since the Clintons. It is, believe it or not, 100% tax deductible, so they were able to get that status. Again, please go to MySonHunterMovie.com right now to make your donation. And we will try to get one of the producers on the show to talk more about the movie But folks, this is broadly how they win on every issue. It's not so much what they say, but if people would know what you and I know, if they would see what you and I see, there's a certain amount in this country that are just gone. But a good number of people would never go along with it. And this is really our information warfare. This is what what COVID was all about. You know, I'm proud from day one, day one, to have not gone along with this, to have talked about what we learned early on from the Diamond Princess when we did have two months of prior slower spread where we learned that it didn't affect children and mainly affect elderly, affected elderly and those with uh, pre-existing conditions. We understood that there was no way you could stop a virus. Then shortly after that, we started seeing hydroxychloroquine and treatments that the government was censoring. But most importantly, from day one, I talked about the fact that there is no constitutional exception, emergency power exception to fundamental rights. And we let that go. Oh, it's only for 15 days. And that's the lesson. Once you give an inch... They take a mile. That's actually a line put out today by Dr. Scott Jensen. Really exciting news I want to tell you guys. Dr. Scott Jensen was on the show. He is a doctor, but also a state senator from Minnesota. And he is running for governor. And he is running on COVID fascism. It's truly shocking how you see Republicans running for office and not even mentioning it. It's the same old, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun, whatever, Every Republican should be running on this, so so this is a very exciting piece of news. We'll try to get him on again. But again, folks, today is the anniversary, and we all have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about COVID fascism, and what are we going to do about where COVID fascism comes from in the culture, in the body politic, and what it represents, and its tentacles into other issues, how we're no longer a Judeo-Christian country, we're no longer a, a, a democratic republic. How do we fix that? These are the questions we need to ask ourselves. It's interesting, today, March 16th, is James Madison's birthday. Father of the Constitution. We need a vision just like Madison for today. We need to t- stop talking about protecting the Constitution in the abstract The Constitution is gone. There's nothing to protect. There's nothing to conserve. Now, I was speaking with a bunch of legislators yesterday across the country, as I try to do every day to try to gather information as well as share my ideas. And, you know, I was speaking with one from Idaho. She was organizing a meeting with uh, people from Oregon about this greater Idaho movement to siphon off counties from Oregon and maybe even Northern California and Washington State and create a red contiguous 
greater Idaho. And we could laugh at some of these proposals. And some of them are very hard, and we're going to have to think about all the you know obstacles. But we do need to talk about them. These are the sorts of level of vision and magnitude of proposals that we need to start conceiving. The problem is that great. We need to start thinking about how do we accentuate and utilize our advantages in rural areas to make them more independent and make them red again. But it is still shocking. Everyone's talking about, oh, the red states did so well against COVID. No, there is no place on earth uh, in this country that we could live with the degree of post-constitutional tyranny that we had prior to March 16th of last year. And we were years beyond being a constitutional republic already then. Some states are slightly not as bad as others. We need to work that. If I had to give you one piece of information marking this grim anniversary, if I had to give you one talking point, one chart, one chart, there's this chart out in the San Francisco Chronicle that shows the results of an antibody test by region in California. And they came out showing that a total of 38.5% of California has antibodies, but 45%, the most in Los Angeles, 45% in LA County, 45% of the people in LA County have antibodies. I want you guys to think back to a year ago, 15 days to flatten the curve. There was this universal understanding that somehow human beings could stop the transmission of a super contagious respiratory virus. And to this day, that is still an ironclad premise by almost everyone. And here we have Los Angeles. Okay? That did the right thing, as we are told. You know, that is the model. They started early and often. They had a lockdown that they never got out of early on, actually before March 16th. I think it was more like March 10th. And in addition to that, they had the earliest mask mandate. And anyone who lives there will tell you there's 100% compliance, even outdoors. And yet they have 40 5% seroprevalence. We need to do this to stop the spread. And they have more spread than anyone else. They got what they sought to avoid. In other words, it turns out it was all pain and no gain. All the mental health problems. All the destruction of the emotional uh, health and mental health and behavioral and psychological and academic development of children. The lost physical medical care. For everyone. The lost dreams of small businesses. The destruction of the economy. The suicides. The drug overdoses. All of that was incurred. 
not for something that wasn't worth it, but for something that did absolutely nothing and failed to stop a single case. One case when you have 45% seroprevalence. That means that likely, I'm making up a number, but it's some order higher than 45% that had it because we know a lot of people, especially when they get it very lightly, the body words it off with inherent B-cell immunity or the memory T-cells. And they don't either, either they don't produce antibodies or they never, um, or if they had them, they had them for a short while. So it, they weren't picked up by this serology test. So it's likely easily over 50%. LA is likely at the herd immunity threshold or very close to it. Whatever it is, if it's 60%, 70%. So in other words, until now, they could have said, you're right, Daniel. Masks and lockdowns, when, it, when, when the virus is going to virus. When it comes, it comes. But I think it some degree maybe slows it down. L.A. disproves all of that because they are at the upper bounds of seroprevalence in the United States. Not at the lower end. They are the strictest, longest lockdown and mask wearing, and they are at the upper bounds. And it wasn't a slow spread because they went from having very little in L.A., if you remember, um, all the way until, let's say, October, November. And then when it hit, it went from like 5% to 45%. Boom. When it was its turn to come, it spread like hell. This is the single biggest proof that the entire premise is the greatest, most devastating scam in the history of the universe. This is a Ponzi scam with human life. So there's a lot of news on that that I'd love to get into more. We also have OSHA is now putting out, they're tweeting out online, there's been misinformation put out online, aka my article. Masks absolutely help. And then they go on to talk about droplets. And it's mentally ill. So California is lost on them. But also, they're still on the droplets. Unbelievable. People have learned nothing 365 days after they said, there's a novel virus and we know nothing about it. And yet we have studied more about this than anything in the history of humanity. So we're going to need our Madison visionaries. We're going to need to create this new movement. I'm working as hard as I can. But sometimes I wonder, is this problem greater than all of us? I don't know. I don't know. But folks, we need to at least put everything on the table so we could look ourselves and our kids in the eyes and say, we did everything we can. But I do want to change gears and get to our guest. Now, an introduction to our special guest today. I just wanted to note the connection between today being that one-year anniversary of COVID fascism and the growth of the greatest crime wave in our lifetime. One of the most remarkable intellectual indictments of our system of government today, our governance, a breach in the social compact, is the fact that this dereliction 
of duty of a government to protect its citizens from criminals is coming precisely at a time of the greatest projection of political and really police powers implemented by a state in the history of our country. It's remarkable at the same time that they're not tolerating anything. We're not going to tolerate any crime. Well, we mean not wearing a mask. People are being let out left and right. This has been going on for, it's you know, you could trace it five to ten years and accelerating every year. It started in the most urban areas. It grew. Both parties adopted criminal justice reform. And then they used COVID as an excuse to let everyone out of jail, not lock up another number of people initially, despite repeat violent offenses. And what we are seeing now is a free-for-all. That the same country, the same citizenry that quakes in its boots if they don't wear a mask, they fear they're going to get punished. You have criminals with 10 gun felonies and 10 drug charges and robberies and God knows what else. And they know they could commit another crime and they won't get locked up and there's no deterrent. The same time we have the war on cops. We have this notion where... Somehow police are being too tough on crime. Now, look, we know there's always bad apples in any profession. I'm not so happy with some individual officers with the COVID fascism, some of the things we've seen. But in general, what you have confronting them in the streets today is the greatest crime wave, no deterrent. They're all souped up on drugs. Now you're, you get a call from a business owner, a witness, Inner city, hey, we have a robbery in progress. You come down. What do you think is going to happen there? Is the guy going to say, hey, you got me. Here I am. I surrender. I'll walk into that police car. Nope. And that's what we're seeing today with the trial of George Floyd. A complete sham. A complete lie. It was built on a lie, just like flattening the curve. The premise of that was built on a lie. March 16th was the revolution against our liberty. May 25th was the re- revolution against our uh, <clears throat> our law and order in this country. And now we have a two-tier justice system. If you're someone that's considered a protected class, you do the crime, you don't do the time. I was just reading about a case in Dayton, Ohio, where this guy had multiple felonies in his past, and he was caught with a loaded gun. In his car. Mind you, at a time when they're saying people like me in the state of Maryland cannot carry a gun to protect myself from the gun gun felons that they let out of jail, caught with a loaded gun, and the dirtbag judge said, hey, wait a minute. This guy, um, he's saying it was his brother's gun, and we can't prove it was his gun. And I was reading the article thinking, what? It's a federal crime no matter what to have felony possession, whether it's your gun or not, and you violate the state law, obviously, of having a gun loaded in your car without a CCW. And basically, the judge just said he's black, so we can't lock him up. And of course, as we always note, the disproportionate number of victims from not locking up criminals, whether they're black or white, are going to be black victims of crime. Roughly 2,000 excess homicides this year as a result of BLM, 
jailbreak policies, weakening every aspect of police deterrent, imprisonment. And then on top of that all, we have George Soros. And George Soros, in many ways, is a model of what we need to do. He looks at the fulcrums, the leverage points in civilization, says, how could I best take advantage of that to enact my policies? So when he wanted to change election law, what did he do? He focused on secretaries of state elections. And then when he wanted to push de-incarceration, he's like, I'm not going to focus as much on governors and senators. He focused on prosecutors. And really, in many ways, the triangle of this are going to be prosecutor races, county judge races, and sometimes state judges too, and sheriffs. Those really are among the most important positions we're going to work on with our Liberty teams, our Liberty Strike Force teams in each state to recruit people to run. But I've been thinking until now, where is the opposition? When I was younger in the early 90s, when the crime bubble reached its peak, there was outrage from every Republican and even a lot of Democrats. And something was done about it. Now the worst it gets, I see some of these Republican legislatures, they're still, we need criminal justice reform. And they don't mean reforms focused on bolstering policing, bolstering sentencing, closing the loopholes that allow career violent offenders to get out of the system. Focusing on the needs of victims of crime that we never hear about, ever. No, it's all about the criminal. Who is standing for the silent majority, law enforcement, victims of crime, peaceful citizens that want law enforcement focused on deterring bad guys and not venturing into these bogus regulatory crimes and things like that? I certainly don't see it coming from the mainstream Republican Party and their leadership. So today I want to introduce to you Nick Gerace. He's He helped found probably the only pack battling the Soros prosecutors trying to elect patriots that care about public safety to these positions. He, he runs a pack called Protect Our Police Political Action Committee. You can go to protectourpolice.org. Um, he served in the Philadelphia police department for 12 years before retiring because of a, of a injury. But now he's serving on the political side because he realized someone needs to be their voice. And I'm really excited to learn about some of what he is doing today. So Nick, with no further ado, thank you so much for coming on today's CR podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Daniel. And good afternoon. Just like to touch that the website is protect our police pack, PAC.org. Ah, I'm always bad with names, protectourpolicepack.org, and we're going to talk about more of what you do. So let's talk about local, and then we're going to branch out nationally. So right. you're in one of the epicenters. I'm in Baltimore, which is certainly one of them. You're in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the home of the pilot program, I would say, of de-incarceration. Uh, Larry Krasner is the granddaddy of the Soros DAs, and, and you know he's working on electing like-minded puppets across um, the country. Um, a lot of people are looking at the crime wave. You know, I've been focusing on it for five to seven years that we were reversing the trend from the '90s. Um, but 
a lot of my colleagues missed it, but now they noticed it since May 25th, since BLM. And they blame it on BLM. And certainly there's a lot of blame to go around there. Certainly the rioting is a part of that. But isn't it true, Nick, that this is really much more systemic and it started earlier than that? So could you talk a little bit about what Krasner and his ilk have done in Philly and the results we have seen in crime over the last couple of years? Right. So you touched on something a little bit earlier. The responsibility of the government is to protect its citizens. And right there alone, there's a lot that we can get into when it comes to George Soros, Larry Krasner, and their ilk across the country. So he has a responsibility to keep his citizens safe. And criminal justice reform is the hot topic and, you know, code word. They love using it. And like you touched on, it's not really criminal justice reform. It's radical socialist experiment that is meant to collapse our criminal justice system as we know it. Again, not the most perfect criminal justice system, but it's the best criminal justice system in the world as we know it right now. There's always room for improvement. So what Larry Krasner has done, he's performing his social experiment on the backs of its citizens. Now, I think we can all agree that one minute in jail for someone who is innocent is one minute too long. And there should be certain kinds of bodies or some kind of uh, system in place that we need to take a look at and fix it. But it's not the role or the job of the district attorney to do this in real time with criminals who are actually committing crimes, you know, that year, that month, that day. You know, this is something that, that needs to be taken a look at, you know, farther back and not from the district attorney himself. You know, this is an experiment that has cost lives. It has cost lives of Philadelphia police officers. It is costing lives of children in the city of Philadelphia. It is an absolute and utter disaster. And he has the gall to stand at press conferences and tell you that the city of Philadelphia is safer now than it was five years prior <laughs> to his existence as a district attorney. And when I say and I'm using that very lightly. He's a fraud and he's impersonating a district attorney. But he really believes, and he'll tell you, that Philadelphia is safer. Meanwhile, I believe it's safer to walk through Baghdad right now than it is Philadelphia. What are some of the crime statistics you've had over the last year or so? So we had a record high homicide last year. It was 499, and I'm going to tell you it's higher than that. You know, they can label a, a, a death as an S, which is suspicious. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, they cooked the books a little bit with these S deaths. And it would be higher than that, but they kept it at 499. Right now, the date, we're 30% higher, and we're going to beat last year's record. Something not to be proud of. I, I mean, it's staggering. He, he ran on a, a system of Black Lives Matter. That, that was his platform. You know, so out of the 499 murders last year, 86% were, were black citizens of Philadelphia. It's staggering. Mm. They're 44% of, of the population of Philadelphia, and they're 86% of the homicide rate that's up i believe six or seven percent from the year prior <laughs> and it's going to be that's the higher. inequality that they won't talk about right right and it's 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 an absolute disaster he's letting these violent criminals out because it's it's criminal justice reform never mind looking at, at what should be fixed we're, we're going to do it on the backs of citizens today and they are repeat offending in in their neighborhoods and it, it, the proof is in the pudding they're committing these heinous and violent crimes 
in the black neighborhoods. And these people are being decimated. You know, these are honest, hardworking people. And he ran on a platform that they want to save black lives. And he's doing the absolute opposite. He needs to be called out on it. And we have the stats and, and the figures. And we will have, you know, family members of victims coming forward soon. And you'll hear from them. And you'll see what he's actually doing to, to this community. It's an absolute disgrace. So you have firekrasner.com as a website. You're, you're starting to go after him. Do you, when is the election for DA there? And, and do you have a candidate yet? So Philadelphia has been Democratic City for over 60 years. If you are going to vote and want your vote heard, it has to be done in the primary because that's when the election is. Republican will not win. The general election you know, is, is months away. The primary is May 18th. So he is going against a career prosecutor, Carlos Vega, a guy, I believe, prosecuted over 400 homicides. I believe he put 16 or 18. I don't have the exact figures uh, on death row. You know, his tagline is he was Black Lives Matter before Black Lives Matter was around. You know, and, and he's a real deal prosecutor. You know, right now we are hyper focused on educating and informing the public what a disaster and a fraud Larry Krasner is. So we launched that website uh, last month to help galvanize people, you know, into an effort to, to get Krasner out of here. You can go on that site. You'll see the figures, 499 murders, 2,240 shooting victims, 195 were children, 33 children were killed, 229 women shot, 200 people per month. And this is under... Larry Krasner, who says it's safer than it was five years ago, which is complete and utter malarkey, as uh, Joe likes to say. So Now, I one mean, of the things that I've noticed, Nick, is that, you know, obviously these guys love gun control, and they always complain about guns. But what, one of the things I've noticed is that almost every time when you look at these heinous murders and you, you find the perpetrator or the suspect, and it's not a virgin. It's not, it's not a new guy. It is a guy that has a long uh, career criminal history, and you're wondering, how in the world is he out? And it's always the same story. They're on parole five times over despite violating it five times, and they always have a ton of gun felonies on their record, and they don't seem to be punished for it. Is that kind of the flavor of what you're seeing in Philly? Absolutely. I mean, we can do eight hours and go over case by case. There's so many of them. You know, I'll give you, for instance, uh, national headlines. Milan Lancar uh, was walking his dog in everyday task that we all do. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't buying drugs. He wasn't involved in anything shady. He was just a normal everyday citizen living a good life. And he's walking his dog and he's approached by a violent felon who Several months prior, a carjack point of gun, his Uber driver, held him hostage. He was arrested for that. While in prison for that, he assaulted, which is a felony, a corrections officer. So two different bail hearings, total of $3,200 because they reduced bail. Krasner's district attorneys, they claim they verbally uh, appealed the, the lower bail, which I don't believe, and I'd like to see the court records. And then they said that they... That they filed a formal uh, appeal, which never happened because it'd be, there'd be a record of it. There's no record of it. So right there alone, the district attorney will go back to what you said before. The government has a duty to keep its citizens safe. The district attorney has a duty to exhaust all means possible to keep violent felons and criminals in prison and not getting on the streets. And he didn't do neither of that. Not only did he not file a written appeal 
and when I say him, it's district, you know, his uh, assistant district attorneys who are following his orders. Not only did they not follow the appeal, they didn't call the parole office because this, this guy was on parole and try to get a detainer put on him. They didn't do anything. They didn't exhaust any means at all. They let this guy out of prison, and a month later, he shoots and murders Milan Lankar for walking his dog. He got nothing. The police, I believe, caught him four hours later in a stolen vehicle, I believe, which was a carjacking. I mean, this guy is a violent felon. If you had a real district attorney, not a fraud like Larry Krasner, Milan Lankar would be alive today because that guy would be in prison. And there's countless other bodies on Larry Krasner. This man has blood on his hands. Jimmy O'Connor, Corporal O'Connor, who's a SWAT officer, was serving a warrant on a violent felon who was let out of prison who committed murder, I believe, the same day he was let out early by Larry Krasner. Two weeks later, SWAT goes to his house and served a warrant. He shoots through the wall, killing Corporal O'Connor. There's two people that still be alive today if it wasn't for Larry Krasner and his failed social experiment. The guy's a fraud. He's killing the citizens of Philadelphia. So that's just two examples right there. Like I said, we can go on for hours and, and talk about how these people are, are being let go. And it's just not Krasner. It's these fraud judges that are political activists that are sitting, you know, sitting on the bar and, and making these decisions based on their ideology, which is childlike. It doesn't make it. There's no common sense to it whatsoever. And this has been going on for a very long time, but it's getting a lot worse. It's becoming acceptable now. And now that you have the, you know, quote unquote, top law enforcement officer, which would be Larry Krasner, you know, behind them, they're more emboldened to, to let these criminals out on low bail, no bail. It, it's a disgrace. It's disgusting. So I want to go through a couple of the big problems I'm seeing one by one that are contributing to the lack of deterrent, the recycling of criminals. And I think the three things that I have found very evident are the trend towards pretrial release, juveniles getting nothing done to them, even if they have massive records and are very problematic and even very violent. And then obviously the handcuffing of police to the point that they're more scared of enforcing the law than not enforcing it. So they kind of choose to do hands off. So I want to go through each one methodically. Start with the bail. You know, when I started working on studying and writing about criminology in the country, I focused mainly on what I thought were the, you know, just the sentencing. The sentencing was too short and too weak and the early release programs and everything. But what I'm finding even more problematic is to me, it almost seems like the bulk of the crime now committed in the country are the people out on pretrial release because they're they're hooked up in the system forever and it takes forever to get a trial and they're released more and more despite their records. Is that what you're seeing in Philly and elsewhere where you're talking with uh, law enforcement? Yeah, absolutely. And listen, these criminals know it. This is their job. They wake up to go to work and they're criminals. You know, they know if they commit a crime in Philadelphia, they don't have to slip through cracks. The back door will be wide open. They're going to go in the front door in cuffs, and a few hours later, leave through the back door, not in cuffs. When before, they would have been arrested, held for trial, be months incarcerated, actually go through some kind of criminal justice system. Now they're being let go right away, low bail, no bail, pre-trial, and they're right back on the street to keep going, you know, to work, which is criminal activity. They know it. 
Yep, they, they, they learn the tools of their trade. I mean, we're seeing that with illegal immigration, how they literally know which sector of the border that they're doing Title 42 turnarounds, which one's not. It's the same thing here. I mean, criminals know the tools of their trade. They know the information they need to know, and they know how to commit more crimes. One of the big ones that I see here in Baltimore, but we're really seeing everywhere, is that, I mean, already in 1981, Reagan's commission on victims of, of crime they talked about how juveniles were increasingly committing more violent crime, a larger share of the violent crime, and now it's it's much more than it was 40 years ago. Um, and how, you know, we're not talking about, okay, you find a kid that's caught shop, shoplifting one time and saying lock him up for, for a long time. We're, we're saying, you know, people that are doing armed carjackings consistently and it's catch and release and catch and release and they're caught with illegal weapons and they're you know these type of guys and then often even murder they get nothing and we've had a couple of those cases here in maryland and to me that seems extremely taboo i know from even a lot of republicans don't want to touch that issue but you know let's face it it's not the old people that commit most of the crime it's it's the young people and it's getting younger and younger and what i'm starting to see is and I want to get your observations on this, where let's say you'll have the younger brothers of the 17 to 25-year-olds, and they're watching how it's cool, right? They joke the next day about how they were processed and released, and you know it's, it was cool because nothing happened. It's not like they served hard time. And they're watching them in the pipeline coming out of the system getting nothing, and I'm seeing as young as 12, 13, we obviously had that girl... Um, at Barnard uh, College in Manhattan, and I'm forgetting her name, it was two years ago, big case, she was 18 years old in college, and it was a group of like 12 and 13-year-olds. But, you know, I mean, this was a single girl out there, and and you get you get a pack of them, I mean, they could, <laughs> they could do a lethal harm to someone, and they did. This is a big problem. How do we get around that? Well, the, the issue is getting rid of, the district attorney and putting someone in place who's going to prosecute criminals regardless of their age. And that is a huge issue. I watched, I believe a month ago, the, you know, third floor of the Philadelphia police department hold a press conference, scratching their head, trying to figure out why all this violent crime is happening, why all these kids are being shot. And I want to pull my hair out if I had any on my head left. It's these kids, you know, their cases are, are closed because they're juveniles. You don't know what's going on. And they are not – it's even worse than, than the adult uh, criminal justice system o- over there in the courthouse. They're coming in and being let go because they're kids. And like you said, these aren't kids that are graffitiing or stole soda. These are kids that are doing hardcore drug sales, robberies, carjackings, shootings. They are violent, and they're being treated as if they stole a donut at the five and dime, and they're being let go with a, a little smack on their behind. And, and this is one of the major reasons for this spike in crime. It's being ignored and people are acting like it's not happening. And it's it just, it, it's maddening. It really is. And this is what is hurting our city. This is why we need a real district attorney in office. And it does, this isn't just Philadelphia. This is everywhere. George Soros has these uh, uh, radical appointed district attorneys that he paid for across the country. This is what's going on. This is the reality of it. And it is very dangerous. It's not going to get any better unless we get rid of these radicals. Now, now, isn't this also a problem, you know, like everything else, it starts in the hardcore blue cities, but now it appears that it's spreading to suburban county district attorneys as well across the country. Um, are you seeing that and are you getting involved in some of those races as well? So 
Protect Our Police PAC last year, we were contacted by over 200 uh, candidates for office. You know, we support people at the state and local level. As you touched on, this is where the real change happens and it's being overlooked. Uh, we endorsed 69. We got 38. Uh, we helped get 38 elected. You know, out of the 30, I believe one was like an open seat. So 36 to 37 candidates, we defeated a defund the police opponent, which mm. is huge. And, you know, we are absolutely being involved across the country. It started out as, as local. We want to have our eyes on our prize with Krasner, but we saw what was going on and we decided we have to go nationally. Right now, you know, we're the only organization taking on Soros in every city. So if you're sitting in Kansas City listening to this right now or Nevada or Idaho in some small county, and you're like, well, I'm not worried about it because it's Philly. Well, you should be worried about it because he's not going to stop until it's in every city, large or small, every county, large or small. It's coming to where you're at. If it's not there already, it will be there. And you can see it across the country. It's scary. So my need to step up and stop Soros, and Krasner is the head of the snake. He is the poster child, as, as you touched on before. You know, this is what he's holding up to all these district attorneys to be. And it's important that we take him on in Philadelphia. Everyone's eyes should be on this race. It's the Lexington you know, of our times right now. It's really important. And then from there, we're going to keep going on and we'll take them on in each city in each county. And Soros is going to keep going in each city in each county. It, it's scary, but it's the reality of it. And we need to step up. We all need to do our part. And folks, I just want you guys to know, I mean, our Pennsylvania team, I have not formed it yet. We need a team leader um, for our Liberty Strike Force team, but we have about 40 people signed up. So May 18th is a big day. That's obviously the day that you're going to have the state referendum on Wolf's emergency powers um, to unconstitutionally lock people down with COVID. But but also, that's going to be the Larry Krasner primary as well. That's going to be a very, very big day. And, and, and elsewhere, I mean, people don't pay attention to these races, but... I mean, these are very important, the the sheriffs, the prosecutors, the county judges. Are you guys getting involved with the judges, too? Because I'm seeing a huge trend where judges, I'm seeing two problems, and they mix together. Number one, they don't believe in incarceration, a lot of them. And number two, they're so into the racist agenda that, you know, they're like, someone is black or not white or whatever they can't go to jail despite whatever they did um and mind you they're gonna they're gonna disproportionately kill black people um that's that's the tragic irony of that are you guys do you have enough of a of an operation to get involved in county judge races as well we do so Anybody running for office right now, we're nonpartisan. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, have an I next to your name. If you're pro-law enforcement and you want our endorsement, you can go to our website, protectourpolicepack.org. Go to our candidate portal, fill out our questionnaire. We vet everybody coming through. We make sure that they are pro-police. We get it written down. You know, We are involved in the state and local elections, judges, sheriffs, mm-hmm. Senate, you know, district attorneys. You know, this is where the change is happening. This is where they're trying to collapse our criminal justice system and, you know, pretty much law and order. So, yes, you know, we're involved across the country. You know, we're looking to get involved and we're looking to find pro-police candidates to help out and to help weed out these defund the police potential disasters that can come to you. So I want to just move on from, you know, obviously the, the prosecution side, the sentencing side. 
to the actual policing side, the mechanics, the the front end of the system, the deterrent in the street. So I think, I mean, we've had this really going on for a while already, the handcuffing of police. It was it was before last year. But, you know, we, we've we've had these things flare up every every once in a while. You had the Ferguson thing, you had the Baltimore thing, where basically there's you I call it a blood libel. They have a story. Now, you know, obviously with with millions upon millions of cop in um interactions with citizens every year. I forgot the number. There's a certain number of how many interactions there are per year. It's it's millions upon millions of them. There's going to be a, a few of them that were done improperly, and there, you know, you you're always going to have cases of people abusing their power. But most of the big ones that we've seen in our lifetime, they're actually not only don't they prove the veracity of the premise of the other side, they actually prove our side of what cops are really up against. And I want you to really walk us through. You know, you have these thumb suckers that sit sit in their in their chair and like, well, I wouldn't have done that. You know, why do you have to shoot him that much? Or why do you do this? You know, you guys are are are, are too rough. Give a picture of, you know, you started in 1999, and we always had drugs, but the drugs took off. Like the the drugs we have now, in terms of the the um strength and just the uh, prevalence on the street is exponentially greater than when you started your career in law enforcement. So if you're a cop, you know, they'll often say, you know, this was just a little, like, shoplifting in a store. Why did the guy have to die? And it's true, it's a shame. Why did it have to come to that? But explain to us how this stuff comes to use of lethal force and what, and again, just broadly speaking, what police are up against. And if you want to give a little bit of a, your view on on Derek Chauvin and and the whole George Floyd thing, throw that in as well. Right. So let's be clear. Nobody hates a bad cop or a dirty cop more than a good cop. You know, you don't want to tarnish or or taint the badge, and and that's definitely what good police are are not about. We want to see bad cops prosecuted just as we like to see criminals prosecuted who are actually guilty. So let's get that off the board right away. You know, that being said, Policing today, the criminals know that they have the upper hand. You know, they will brag about it to your face. They will tell you there's nothing you can do about it. You can lock me up now and I'll be out in an hour. You know, and that's it it emboldens them. You know, it gives them the courage not only to, you know, verbally fight back, but to physically fight back. So just that alone, really, uh, it really handcuffs the police from that angle all by itself. Never mind what your your leaders and your city officials are, are doing. So the riots last year, our district attorney came out and the fraud spineless mayor that we have here, Bozo Kenny, they, you know, with the wave of their scepter, got rid of 700 criminal citations. You know, these are rioters and looters. You know, we can go through each one, some worse than the others, some very minor. Regardless, they're criminal citations that they just waived and got rid of. You know, no legal precedent. They, they just decided to get rid of it. So what he was focused on, rather than prosecuting criminals, Larry Krasner was focused on pouring over hours, hundreds of hours of videotape to see if any police officers were involved in any wrongdoing or any kind of violence toward protesters so he could prosecute a cop. You know, and he found one, which would be uh, Joe Bologna, who I believe is a chief inspector, who is a great guy. He's you know, dedicated his life to the city of Philadelphia. 
He was locking up a, a protester when he was assaulted by another protester. So he went to grab the guy assaulting him, and he hit him with his nightstick in, in, the, in his shoulder. Well, Krasner locked him up for assault. You know, hit him with a felony, I believe. He gets found not guilty, goes in front of a judge. You know, the judge throws it out. So what does Krasner do? He, he re-arrests him. You know, he, he vows to get him again. Doesn't vow to go after the violent criminal, you know, who has multiple gun charges, you know, carjacking and, and to keep him in prison. He's worried about prosecuting police officers. So this is what we're, we're against. It, it's just it goes against common sense. It goes against law and order. And it's the complete opposite of what we've known from a criminal justice system. So as you get into the physics of handcuffing somebody, yes. you know, you might see you might see a 15 year old skinny kid and there's four cops on top of them. Right. And someone's like, oh, my God, you know, they're beating that kid or this is so bad. It, it might look bad, but the reality of it is you don't want to get handcuffed. It's going to take a lot of people to handcuff you. And you're doing it in a way where you're trying not to hurt that person. And at the same time, you're trying not to get hurt. You're trying to make sure your partner's not yes. getting hurt. You have to make sure they don't have any kind of weapon on them or gun because you don't know. Because in, in a split second, they could pull a gun from their waistband or their pocket and then kill all of you or shoot somebody. I mean, there's so many factors that, that play into it. And, and, you know, people are under this perception that, you know, you handcuff someone's very easy, especially when you have a, a bunch of people who are 100-pound, <laughs> 5-foot-nothing uh, woman, you know, it's going to take three or four people to handcuff her if she doesn't want to get handcuffed. And then you factor in yes. drugs. You know, if you ever fought anyone high on PCP, you know, they have super strength. It's insane how strong they are. And it's just people just have this philosophy. And because leaders who are idiots, like uh, someone saying shoot someone in the leg instead of shooting them, you know, in the chest, uh, you know, police officer. Well, you can't shoot people in the leg. You can't shoot people in the you know the gun out of their hand it's not realistic you know, even in the chest and, and then even in the chest you get failure to stop i mean obviously those yeah. of you who are going to come out with me to con you know constitutioncoach.com on our april 25th and may 30th uh, trips to front site nevada you're going to get civilian defense handgun training you're going to learn the failure to stop drills and they're not the exception to the rules they're the rule nowadays because the chances are if you're confronted with a bad guy civilian or a cop. And I, I want to throw this as a piece of evidence into our discussion, uh, Nick, because civilians are confronted with the same thing. Most of the bad guys are high on drugs these days. And if you don't hit them immediately in a vital organ, they have more time on the clock and they have, they're immune to pain in the meantime, and they're going to come at you. So, you know, that that's the issue. But I want I want to go back to the handcuffing because, you know, uh, this this very important and, and, and the George Floyd thing. So, you know, I, the, the way I view this as a civilian is like this, that there's all different levels of physical confrontation with someone. The easiest thing is to evade when you're trying to evade someone else. So you, you, you need the, the least amount of skill and strength to evade. The next level is the other end of the spectrum, but it's not the most skill, is just to defeat the guy, right? So you, you incapacitate him, you clock the guy, so that you need a little bit more, but only a certain extent. The hardest thing is when you're a cop, unlike a civilian, so you have to apprehend him, but at the same time, the goal is not to harm him and like, you know, knock him out, 
but you have to make sure you don't get hurt. Someone else doesn't get hurt, but he is apprehended, and now he's on drugs. And now, with all these videos, they know they could fight, so they specifically fight. Fighting is now the rule, not the exception. So you need tons of people just to have enough logistic kind of force that you don't have to employ greater force that, you know, is is like trauma. Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's a force continuum. You don't want to use excessive force, but you need to meet the force just above to, to, to get the optimal result. So now, now go on to George George Floyd. I really want you to present to the public what you feel happened there and and, and how this is going to reverberate across the country and is already with tr- just, you know, routine arrests. Right. So the overall look of what happened was awful. Uh, just it was not a good look at all. It's horrible that someone lost, lost their life. I really believe, and I don't know the training, so I, I can't speak as an expert as, as a, the department's training, but I believe he was following what he was trained in when it came to the delirium syndrome and, and how to, uh, you know, hold a suspect for a certain amount of minutes and then get them medical attention right away. I believe that's going to come out in court. That's going to play a huge factor into why we saw uh, happen, did happen, and why he did what he did. It's going to come down to what his training, the training materials are, how the police department presented it to their officers. Uh, myself, when, you know, I've handled, I worked in Kensington and Philadelphia. Uh, being in Indiana was the number one heroin corner when I was there in the entire country. I, I dealt with people in George Floyd's condition. You know, we had paddy wagons, emergency wagons, uh, you know, which was great because you can get someone cuffed, throw them in the wagon and get out of Dodge. You know, you're de-escalating the situation in the neighborhood. You know, lesser chance of a ride happening. You're getting the, you know, the prisoner, you know, under control quicker and in a setting where he's in the wagon, you know, he's not going to hurt himself or hurt anybody else. And you can get him to the hospital and nine out of 10 times, you know, the, the high, the, the narcotic, the, the rush that, that they have, the fight or flight, is usually calmed down by the time you get them to the hospital because you realize, you're trained to see that they're high on narcotics and you're not just going to take them in, into the jail cell because you know they're going to need help. You don't want them to overdose. And, and that's your main concern is safety of you, safety of the prisoner, and safety of the people around you. And that's, you know, I, I Philadelphia has it right. You know, we have them wagons, we get them guys in a wagon, and we get out of Dodge. It de-escalates the situation. It keeps everybody safe, and that's the best way to do it. Again, their training, their department, they have a lot to, to work out, and I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see how this plays out with the trial, but I believe it's all going to come down to the training and what training materials is presented by, by the defense. Well, I would say the training materials in terms of even a civil case, criminal case is definitely not murder because, again, I mean, he 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 killed himself. Uh, the cops were dealing with him fighting, and you know, it's more it's more like, hey, is there a civil case? Did he not do the right thing to get him to the uh, to an ambulance? But but you're right. It kind of it looks so bad that I knew there was something funny. You know, everyone was like, well, he died, and everyone was yelling to let go. Well, they always yell to let go. You have a hostile crowd around you. And, you know, he did that deliberately because now we know he was high on drugs. They knew that um, he was fighting them. So, you know, there was a procedure in place to lay them on their side. And and likely what it appears is that he wasn't using lethal pressure with his knee. Um, the optics didn't look good, but it wasn't choking. It was more checking 
based on what we see with the autopsy, um, there wasn't any neck damage. So, right. you know, you know, my, my concern is if you're a cop, why would you ever want to engage a suspect? You know that if you use, if you if you try to defuse the situation using any degree of force you feel you need to use, you're going to be the one on on the hook. Um, or if you really try to thread the needle, you're going to get hurt or killed yourself. So you're like, you right. know what? No one's going to know if I just don't pursue the guy. I wonder how much that goes on now. Oh, that's a, that's a huge factor. I mean, you know, you have cops, especially in a city like Philadelphia, where the district attorney's pouring over hours of videotape to see if they could find any kind of wrongdoing, you know, from police officers to arrest them. You know, so that, that definitely plays in factor. And, it, it, you know, it's not something cops should take take into account, but it happens. It's a human factor. You know, police officers are human. They're scared for their lives. They're scared for their job. They're scared for their family. And it it's all, you know, it all factors into what we're talking about. The, the defund the police movement, the being so quick to arrest police officers. Cops are retiring at an alarming rate. We're not going to be able to, to hire, you know, high quality trained police officers to replace the ones we're losing. People are just quit. I've never seen it before. People with halfway through their careers are leaving to go get other jobs because mm. they don't want to get arrested for doing their job lawfully. And I can't blame them. I really can't. You know, so this is this is a huge problem. And it's, you know, n- never mind the, the normal retirement rate. You know, now we're dealing with people leaving because of this defund the police, because of these radical prosecutors. And it's it is definitely we're undermanned. We're understaffed. It's already starting to show. And in a few years, look out. It's going to be really bad. I can only imagine. And I just wonder when the people are going to start crying out. And, and when this wretched Republican Party will actually return to its roots on this issue. But for your purposes at um, Protect Our Police Pack, you're trying to recruit good candidates. Could you just speak a little bit to what you're looking at in the future? We're almost out of time. Let's maybe go to L.A. and talk about the Recall Gascon movement um, and how that's going on, the, the L.A. prosecutor that just won. Right. I mean, that's great. It's a prime example of, and I believe it's a bipartisan movement. People come together to get rid of this radical. I mean, that guy is absolutely insane. You know, he, he believes criminals over victims, which is a horrible philosophy for a district attorney. You want to you have that philosophy? Be a defense attorney, not a district attorney. Your job is to keep the citizens safe and to prosecute, you know, criminals. It's just you know, sometimes common sense goes a long way, and it's just absolutely insane what's going on. I'm happy they're recalling. I saw that they just uh, started to recall five days ago for the radical in San Francisco, uh, Boudin, I believe his Boudin, name is. Boudin, yeah, yeah, Boudin. Boudin, yeah. So, you know, people are starting to realize and starting to fight back. You know, they caught us. They caught us asleep at the wheel. Soros did, and he and he jammed through these people with with his millions of dollars because no one paid attention to these races. The people are starting to wake up; they're fighting back. You know, right now we are hyper focused on Krasner. May eighteenth, we can have the head of the snake chopped off, the first block to fall in the Soros, uh, you know, appointed district attorneys, the poster child. We'll have the blueprint, the plan. We can take it across the country and show people this is how we defeat George Soros and his radical district attorneys. And we're just going to keep the movement going. The thing with the left is, you know, they're radicals. And when I say left, I'm not saying Democrats are Republican. You know, Democrats and Republicans need to work together on this. 
um, when I say the, the radical progressive left, these are Marxists. It's a very small percentage of the country are holding us hostage right now. And radicals will dip into their pocket and fundraise. And they have millions of dollars. And they have George Soros, who is a billionaire. The guy has more money than he'll ever know what to do with. So they have unlimited funding. What we need is Democrats, Republicans to realize what's going on and to donate. You can go to firecrasner.com, protectourpolicepack.org. You can donate, help us take Krasner out, and then we're going to move on. We're going to get into the fight out in the West Coast. We are going to take on every radical district attorney Soros has appointed across the country. The only thing is we need donations. We need yes. the five-hour donation, which is absolutely fantastic. I've gotten letters where I got $1, and it's all they can afford. But guess what? They got their voice heard. They should be proud of themselves. I'm happy to take that dollar. Then we need the person who has millions who wants to say, here's 100000 here's a $1 million. If we don't do it, then who? People need to step up and start fighting back. We need the donations to take these people on because they have unlimited funding. It's not the time to say, I'm going to sit back and watch and see what happens. It's time for people to step up. If not you, then who? If not, uh, if not now, then when? And I think, right. you know, I, again, protectourpolicepack.org, it's really one of the few organizations that are engaging electorally that I could actually put my name onto because it's a very targeted, clearly defined mission and very achievable as well. Okay, these are generally lower cost races than obviously a governor or a senator, but in many respects, they're more important. Um, and and as, as Nick is saying, and I agree, this is still a funny issue. Typically on the political side, most other positions – there's not really much of a difference between Democrats running in a primary. But when it comes to prosecutor races, we saw this in Atlanta as well. There are Democrats that, you know, they run as Democrats. I don't know their other politics. I don't care, frankly, for this purpose that they, they understand the danger of what is happening with the source prosecutors and they are putting their names out there. So if you know of anyone in our respective state teams, um, send it to me and I'll work with Nick to try to get that guy um, the PAC endorsement, but of course that's going to require more funding. So please donate generously to protect our police PAC.org. Um, Nick Gerace, we are out of time. That is Nick Gerace, a third generation police officer uh, from Philadelphia. Thanks so much for joining us today and let's speak soon. So folks, this is going to be an important partnership uh, with our Liberty Strike Force teams because it's not just Philadelphia and Los Angeles. As you well know, it's in every major city in every state. Like, I mean, they're going to target Oklahoma City. They're going to target Anchorage. And then and then the surrounding areas. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they're already venturing into the exurbs and the, and the rural areas as well. I mean, this is a problem now. You have to, as part of these teams, one of the things you're going to have to do is audit all the prosecutors in your area, make sure there are they are on, on our side. If they're good and they're being challenged, they need to be protected. Um, if they're not, they need to be dislodged. And um, you know, hopefully this will be an outlet for us to partner with to go after these people. And this this is everything. This really is everything. Um, it, it's Again, it's not just um, safety and security. It's liberty as well because the same prosecutors letting out the criminals – are prosecuting Trump supporters. They're they're prosecuting people for COVID fascism. So this is really important. I know we're very late and we've gone over time. It's a very long show. 
I'd be remiss if I didn't close with a very important observation. It is truly unbelievable how the Republican Party has abandoned law and order and tough on crime policies. They could have single-handedly won every election that they've recently lost based on this issue alone if they would accentuate every last crime story. Uh, you know, all these criminal releases, they could crush the Democrats regardless of the politics of every other issue. So in many respects, this is a big key. You know, when you have a brainwashed society that is, let's face it, I mean, we have problems with education, we have problems with the moral values, the decline of the church in America, people are worn down in terms of their, their fortitude and their values. Crime and the fear, just like the fear of, of COVID worked against us, the fear of crime works in our favor. And this is a huge wedge issue we could use to win many other issues and getting good people across all sorts of offices. And I want to point your attention to a New York mag com New York Magazine interview with a guy named David Shore. I talked about this last year when they did their first interview. This is the second interview they did with him. He is a self-described socialist whiz kid in his 20s. He ran Obama's dead operation. Very smart political guy. And it's fascinating to hear from a leftist his take on politics. And he's very, like, candid about it. You know, he believes certain things, but... He'll be candid and tell you, look, I don't think it resonates with the public. And he and I think he has some very good insights. And part of his whole point is he believes that socialism sells. I mean, I think it's not really true, and I think there's a way we could fight back against that. But be it as it may, he's concerned that his fellow leftists are pushing the culture stuff too much, the tranny stuff, the legal immigration and crime in particular, and he thinks it's hurting them. And one of the things the interviewer asked David is, hey, you know, why do you think Hispanics in particular seem to shift away in certain areas from the Democrats and shifted to Trump? And it was amazing what he said. He said, we look specifically at those voters who switched from supporting Hillary in 2016 to Trump in 2020 to see whether anything distinguishes this subgroup in terms of their political opinions. What we found is that Clinton voters with conservative views on crime, policing, and public safety were far more likely to switch to Trump than voters with less conservative views on those issues. And having conservative views on those issues was f more predictive of switching from Clinton to Trump than having heavy conservative views on any other issue set. This lines up pretty well with trends we saw during the campaign. In the summer, following the emergence of defund the police as a nationally salient issue, support for Biden among Hispanic voters declined. So um, that's a big issue. And again, I think this is the sweet spot that appeals to white vo voters in the suburbs as well. This really hits the sweet spot, and it's criminal that Republicans have thrown the fight on this issue. So this is a big issue I want to get involved with in state and local policy fights as well as elections but we are out of time i hope this show as always was informative to you these are the type of guests i hope to have on this is the type of focus of my show if you are new to the show you'll see it is a show like none other um and i hope you have enjoyed it and will take this to all your friends and relatives this is not just a t typical conservative talk show we are really about looking at what is wrong with our society and our politics and doing something about it Again, you could sign up at on iTunes, 
Uh, give us a five-star rating. Sign up for our Liberty Strike Force teams at conaction.network. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. Stay safe. And thank you for listening.